0: Do you want to talk about books? Yeah! Hello, and welcome to A Well-Read Life. This is a place to share stories about good books and the reading life. I'm your host, Beth Jamison. Join me as I meander through my reading journey and discover the books that make up a well-read life. Today, I'm continuing the series I started last week on Kristen Lovren's Daughter by Sigrid Unset. In this episode, I'll be talking about the first book in the series, The Wreath. Last time I mentioned this was my second time to read this series, and how my view had changed from my first reading to my recent reading. I wanted to talk a little bit more about that before I dug into the book today, because I'm beginning to be convinced that one reads some books differently according to the season and time in one's life. So some things that are a little bit different this time around than last time around was that the first time I read the book, I was in a reading contest with my husband, and I'm not sure if I've mentioned this before on the podcast but five years ago, in 2017, my husband and I did a reading contest for a year. And I'll have to talk about it more on another podcast. It was, it was a lot of fun and kind of stressful at the same time. And we had a, a lot of fun competing with each other. But the quick basics of the contest were that we had to see who could read the most books, but also the most pages in a year. It's a little complicated. And my husband is the one who came up with the criteria for that. And like I said, that's a story for another day, but it was the first book I read for the contest. And I was convinced that if I read a really thick book, that this was going to give me a heads up. The problem was I was trying to read it much too fast. And I, I've mentioned before that I have heard a lot of praise for this book. And because I was trying to read it fast, I was missing a lot of nuance, a lot of what the story had to say. I didn't have the patience to sit with it. I believe it is a book that begs for us to take time with it. That said, I've read this book a lot faster this time because I couldn't put it down. But I was more patient reading it. I wasn't trying to fly through it. Some other things that have affected the way I view the book are motherhood. There's a lot about motherhood in the second and the third book. And there is more of an understanding than when I read the book the first time. I was not a mother then, and I couldn't identify as much with some of what Kristen was experiencing. Not that we always have to identify with the heroine, but there are some beautiful things, as I said before, that Sigurd Unset is able to bring out about motherhood throughout the book. And it does help if you have experienced some of that. I've also started to read books a lot more carefully because of the podcast and some book clubs that I'm in that have really challenged me because the women are so intelligent and they really dig into books. And I've I've started to learn to read books more slowly. I don't have to feel like I'm in a contest. And also Rachel Atkinson's tips on commonplacing Is really helping me in my reading because I'm taking the time to think about the words and look for threads that tie together and things that I may want to include in a commonplace book, some quotes that are beautiful and truthful. And I also, again, mentioned that article in Fathom magazine about the merit of reading hard books. I can see the merit of reading books that are harder now. And that has also played a part in how I view the book. So my impression, as you can tell, has changed dramatically from the first time that I read it to the second time that I read it. And the first time that I read it, I didn't dislike it, but I didn't understand why it was so praised, as I've said before. And in spite of that, it still stuck with me. And it was so vivid in some of its pictures. Of medieval life in Norway, that there are scenes that I remembered and that I just could not forget. And like I said, when I read Loris, I I kept thinking of Kristen Lovren's Daughter, and I was so reminded of that as well. And this was a little bit of a difficult style of book to read, and I'm a little bit more used to reading that now. So, that was another factor in my shift of impression between the two readings. And again, I've talked about this before of reading a book the second time and how my impression changes. And that seems to happen a lot in my life in the last couple of years. So, always give a book a second chance. I'm learning. So, I I hope that that kind of gives you a slight background. And I'm sorry it's so brief about. How my view of Kristen Laughrin's daughter has changed and shifted. And again, it's just a little, a little plug there to give a book a second chance that, especially if it stays with you, if there are parts of it that stay with you, it's worth revisiting. And this book is thick, three books in one, but the trilogy is an investment. But I believe that this is a series that shouldn't be read one time. So I'm asking for a huge commitment of you to read this trilogy, but also in a few years to pick it back up and revisit it and see what you glean from it on the second time around. And all that said, a few more quick things before I dig into the wreath. I want to talk about where the name comes from. Kristen Lovren's daughter. Maybe it's just me, but I found this fascinating. The surnames in the book are done by patronymics. So that's a name derived from the name of a father or ancestor, and it typically has a prefix or a suffix. So Lovren's daughter simply means Kristen is the daughter of Lovren's. Her father's name is Lovren's. If her father had had a son, his surname would be Lovren's son. So Kristen's father has a different surname than she does, and her mother does as well. All legitimate children carry the name of their father and either the suffix son or daughter. I just thought that was an interesting tidbit, so I wanted to share it. Also, before I go any further, I want to talk about what it is that makes this book so compelling to me. And in order to do that, I want to read a quote from the introduction of Sigrid Unset's biography, which I recently got and I have been devouring. The quote is talking about The realistic style in which Sigrid Ansett writes. So the quote goes, but she is bolder in her description of reality than were most of her great predecessors. The picture she gives of humanity, the passions, hate and love, betrayal and loyalty, the idyllic and the tragic of the whole of life from the movement of the embryo in the womb to the withering of the body and death. From the smell of blood which a human child draws in as it comes into the world, up to the highest forms of conscious existence. All this is presented by her without a trace of romantic idealization or artificiality. Few writers have seen deeper into the unpleasantness of life, into mankind's destitution and wretchedness. We should not close our eyes, she said in a talk to other Catholic writers in America during the last war, too what a shocking business human life is. But she does not close her eyes to what is most shocking of all, man's own guilty responsibility for his wretchedness. Here, too, she is without fear. Indeed, it is in this that her special daring, the boldness she has in greater measure than most of us, is displayed. And that's from her biography, Sigurd Unset, by A.H. Winsnes. I believe that's how you pronounce it. But that's kind of... A summation of why I love this book so much. It is just this way that she is able to capture humanity and our need for redemption. It is just beautiful in this book. I also want to touch on how Kristen Laverne's daughter is different from a romance novel. So, this is done in the style of a traditional saga which the Merriam-Webster definition for a saga is a long story of heroic achievement, especially a medieval prose narrative in Old Norse or Old Icelandic. And as I mentioned before, Sigrid Unset was greatly influenced by Neil's saga as a child. So the story of Kristen is in the medieval world, and it, it is throughout Kristen's life. And along with the saga, it also has a close tie to the traditional definition of a romance which is a medieval tale based on legend chivalric love and adventure the supernatural and literary terms.net describes it as in the strictest academic terms a romance is a narrative genre in literature that involves a mysterious adventurous or spiritual storyline where the focus is on a quest that involves bravery and and strong values, not always a love interest. However, modern definitions of romance also include stories that have a relationship issue as the main focus. So I would think of Kristen Lovren's Daughter more of a saga with mixtures of the classical, traditional definition of a romance. It is not a romance novel, even though there is a lot of romance in the first Book. But again, just bear in mind that this was heavily influenced by the sagas that Sigurd Unset read as a child. So now I've talked about all this, and I want to give a brief summary of the wreath before I continue. I'm going to try my best not to spoil things throughout the episode, but there are a few big themes that I want to talk about that will require a little bit of spoiling. So if that is going to hinder you, From reading the book, I want to go ahead and give you that warning. So you may want to wait and come back to this episode later, but maybe stick around for the summary at least, so that you will be enticed to read the series. The wreath is the beginning of Kristen Lavren's daughter's story. It begins when she is seven years old and it continues until her wedding day. Within the story, you see Kristen's first innocence her beautiful relationship with her father. You get a picture of Norwegian life in the Middle Ages. You are given the picture of a family life on a farm and the day-to-day activities that happened. But you also get a picture of the tension between the old ways and the new ways that have come in. It is also a story of temptation and seduction, innocence lost, tragedy and brokenness in relationships and the human soul. And to say anything else would give too much away. So like I said, if you have not read it before, put the episode away, read the first book and come back. But if you're not afraid of spoilers, I'm going to first talk about who the characters are and what we should pay attention to in the story. Because these are the characters you'll be journeying with throughout the series. So of course, Kristen, she's the main character. She is the daughter of Laverins and Ronfred. Kristen is beautiful, innocent, adores her father. She is from a prosperous family of very high reputation. Her father is a very well-respected man. She is a complex character. She is thoughtful and educated. she knows how to read, which is unusual at the time. Only one per cent of women in the Middle Ages could read. She is taught to read by her father, which shows, the respect that he has for Kristen. And he is essentially giving her the education of a man. Some of her faults are she can hold a grudge many times to her detriment and the detriment of others. Now, Kristen undergoes a lot of change in her character throughout this book and throughout, of course, all the other books, but really throughout this book. Her desire is awakened, but her innocence is corrupted and it leads her into a life of duplicity even deceiving the father she loves so dearly. Next, we have Lovrens, who is Kristen's father. He is a handsome man, a prosperous farmer, a natural leader, a man of deep conviction and integrity, a devout Christian, a loving, a doting, and a very present father to his daughter. It's referenced many times throughout the book how he should have been a chieftain. Now, I haven't done my research as much with this but it, it's in a wistful way as if Laverns is born at the wrong time he is meant to lead a group of men he is respected as i said before by his neighbors and he has a spotless reputation his life has been marred by tragedy though all of his sons that he and his wife have die young or in childbirth i believe that it's five sons but Laverns does not wallow in this although his life is marked by it. Instead, he lavishes love on his daughters, especially Kristen. Kristen is his favorite. Then we have Ronfred, who is Kristen's mother. And she is a very interesting character. She's not in the book as much as I would like, but pay close attention to her. At the beginning of the book, and through much of the book, Ronfred is withdrawn because of the pain of losing her children. And there's another reason as well that we don't find out until much later. She is not as well-liked as her husband by the people around her because she is sullen and she's quiet. She loves Kristen, but she doesn't know how to show it, and she's not especially close to her. She does not dote on Kristen like Lovren's does. And as I mentioned, Ronford has a double dose of tragedy in her life because she bears a devastating secret throughout her marriage to Lovrens that only her brother is privy to. And although she is withdrawn and not as doting as Lovrens, she is very devoted to her children. She is an industrious woman. She is a hard worker. She is, with all of her sullenness, she is a woman to be admired. But as I mentioned, she's complex, so pay attention to her. Then there is Erland. He is handsome from an aristocratic family. He's confident. He's charismatic. He's romantic. He's impulsive and impetuous. He always has, I like to think of it as misplaced honor. He loves Kristen, but he has no self-control. You will have moments of loathing him as you read it and moments when he almost wins you over. Erland is true to himself first and has a kind of twisted code of honor. He has a tendency to harm those who love him. When he is first introduced, he has a mistress who is still married to another man and two children from their adulterous union. And because of his adultery, he was excommunicated from the church and had to flee to Denmark, where he was very close to the queen of Norway. At the time he meets Kristen, he has just been reconciled to the church. Then we have Simon, or I believe it might be pronounced Simone. He is Kristen's betrothed. He is from a well-respected and prosperous family. He is of a jolly temperament. He's kind, he's good-humored, and he's honorable. He loves Kristen, too. He highly respects and loves lovelings. And considers him like Lovren's son. And then some minor characters are Brother Edvin, a monk who befriends Kristen as a child. He has a hunchback, and he is kind of an itinerant monk. He goes and travels from place to place. He is an artist. He paints altarpieces. And when he first meets Kristen, he is doing some artwork for a church. He is like Kristen's spiritual father. So I'm going to talk about something in a little bit, and it's very important. One of the characters I'll talk about next, it's as if Brother Edvin and that character are helping in the battle for Kristen's soul. Brother Edvin meets Kristen when she's a child, as I mentioned, and he tries to encourage her to enter a convent. She's about, I think, seven at the time, and he hopes that she will devote her life to God. He seeks to reconcile Kristen to God when she goes astray. He is deeply grieved by her sin, but he never abandons Kristen because of it. Then we have Frau Asild, Erlen's aunt. She was once a noble woman. She has been stripped of her title and wealth and estranged from her now grown children after an adulterous affair. Her first husband also died under mysterious circumstances. And there's a rumor that she and her lover murdered her husband. His death freed her to marry the man whom she was having an affair with. She is called a witch because of her healing methods, which seem suspect to the people around her. She teaches Kristen some of her healing methods when she is called to tend Kristen's younger sister. Now, the title of the book is The Wreath. And I want to talk about the significance of the bridal wreath in Norwegian culture at the time. Because it is important to the rest of the story. The bridal wreath that a woman wore, it was a crown often, and it was a very heavy and elaborate headpiece. It was sometimes made of gold and silver, and there were jewels and coins attached to it. So, this was not a small tiara. This was not a small crown. This was a large, as I said, elaborate headpiece. It was a symbol of the Virgin Mary and a symbol of the bride's chastity and purity. Widows, pregnant women, and women who were not virgins were not allowed to wear a bridal crown or wreath. And that is important to remember as you read the story. Crowns were often owned by the church, but sometimes a family might own their crown. Again, important to take note of if the church owns the crown or not. And I also read on one website that the silver in the crown was used to protect the bride from abduction by troll folk and from the evil eye. And this is a reference to the pagan past of the Norwegian people, which I'll talk about a little bit more in a minute. But that's just a little interesting tidbit. So look for references to the crown throughout the book. And especially as Erland begins his temptation and seduction of Kristen. He makes several references of how he wants to see her in her bridal crown on her wedding day. So I'm going to start talking about two of the big themes in the story. The first theme that I want to talk about is the tension between paganism and Christianity in the book. And to start off with, I want to talk about the religious climate in Norway at the time. Now, I believe I mentioned last time, Norway had only been a Christian nation for about 300 years which seems like a long time, but it took even longer for it to spread to the people in the mountains. So in some places, people were still holding on to some rituals from paganism. There might be a little bit of a mixture between paganism and Christianity. And so it's shown in many ways throughout the book. And it's almost as if it is mirroring what is going on in Kristen's soul. So from the very beginning of the book, the Christian world and the pagan world are vying for Kristen. And one of the passages that shows this so clearly and it's one of the passages that fascinated me when I first read it and is stuck with me always is when Kristen is 7 years old and she goes with her father up into the mountain pastures. And this is the first time she's going up with her father. She's so excited and they have a big picnic in the field with all the men that have come with her. And there's a mountain woman who has come along as well. And everyone is eating and drinking and they all fall asleep. And Kristen wanders down, she wakes up and she wanders down to a small mountain stream and she comes across an elf maiden. And I want to read that passage of what she encounters. So Kristen as she's down by the stream, she, she makes a wreath for herself out of the flowers she finds around her. And she considers herself like a grown-up, and she is fantasizing about that time. So I'm going to read the encounter. She bent over the water and saw her own dark image rise up from the depths and become clearer as it came closer. Then she saw in the mirror of the stream that someone was standing among the birches on the other side, and leaning toward her. Abruptly, she straightened up into a kneeling position and looked across the water. At first, she thought she saw only the rock face and the trees clustered at its base. But suddenly, she discerned a face among the leaves. There was a woman over there, with a pale face and flowing flaxen hair. Her big, light gray eyes and her glaring, pale pink nostrils reminded Kristen of Goldsfins, She was wearing something shiny and leaf green, and branches and twigs hid her figure up to her full breasts, which were covered with brooches and gleaming necklaces. Kristen stared at the vision. Then the woman raised her hand and showed her a wreath of golden flowers and beckoned to her with it. So as you heard the Troll Maiden and I think this is so delightfully eerie, beckons Kristen, this young child, all alone, to come with her. Now, it's, it's kind of interchanged that she's either called a troll maiden or an elf maiden, which is not that important. But it is interesting that within this Christian world, there is still a belief in trolls and elves And their ability to steal away children and cause harm to someone's life and someone's soul. And this is also a little taste of Kristen first meeting the pagan world and her first real encounter with temptation. And so she's mesmerized at first. This woman is beautiful. She has this gold and these brooches and she's beckoning for Kristen. And Kristen is almost as if she's under a spell. But she hears her father's horse, and the spell is quickly broken, and she yells for her father. She goes to her father first, and it's a testament of how, I mean, any child would do this, but it is also a testament of how safe she feels with her father. And she tells her father, she tells him immediately what happened, and the mountain woman that is accompanying the party, she says that Krista must have seen the elf maiden. And she says, I tell you, she must have wanted to lure this pretty child into the mountain. Blavins immediately shuts the woman down. And he says this very strange line. We shouldn't have talked about such things the way we did here in the forest. You never know who's under the stones listening to every word. Her father then makes the sign of the cross and puts his gold chain with the cross around her neck. And he tells everyone not to say a word to Christian's mother about what happened. As I've mentioned before, they have a lot at stake if they lose another child. And then the next day, he will not let Kristen accompany him further up into the mountain because he wants to protect her. So he has her shut in the house, and there's an unbaptized child with them. So both of them, they want to protect them from this elf baiting. And the women who are watching the children are told to lock the door and close the smoke vent because he's trying his hardest to protect them from this evil world. Shortly after this, Kristen is taken to one of the larger towns around them while Lovren's has business. And she's taken to a church. And this is when she meets Brother Edvin. And he takes the time with Kristen and talks with her. He is very, very kind to her. And so this is kind of a, a healing moment after what she's just been through as a child. And so it's a pull back to the Christian church for this small child. So as Brother Edvin is painting, he engages in conversation with this young girl and he's beginning to tell her truth. And he's talking about loving God. And Kristen says to him, but what if a person doesn't fear and love God? And she's asking this in horror. And Brother Edvin says this to Kristen, there is no one, Kristen, who does not love and fear God. But it's because our hearts are divided between love for God and fear of the devil, and love for this world and this flesh, that we are miserable in life and death. For if a man knew no yearning for God and God's being, then he would thrive in hell, and we alone would not understand that he had found his heart's desire. Then the fire would not burn him if he did not long for coolness, and he would not feel the pain of the serpent's bite if he did not long for peace. So this is a moment where Kristen is healed. She is being shown a different way after that incident with the elf maiden. It is an influence for good, and it is a a reconciliation with Christ. It is a redemptive moment of bringing this young child who has just had this horrific experience into the church, into the embrace of God's love. Jump forward a few years Kristen has a younger sister who is in a terrible accident, and the priest has come, a different priest, not Brother Edwin, and tried to help heal the young girl. I believe the priest must have played a role as a doctor as well, and no one has been able to, and Ronfrid is beside herself, and this is when she calls in Fra Asild, and people are trying to keep her from doing that because she's known for being a witch, but Ronfrid says she would sell her soul to the devil in order for her child to be saved. So again, this family is kind of in this dance between paganism and Christianity. Now, Lavrens never falters, but this is happening in his home still. So Fra Osild comes and she teaches Kristen some of the healing arts. And Kristen when she meets her she's she's thinking she's not really a witch and she and I don't believe that the woman is but she does stick to the older ways and she because of her past sins she is not seeking reconciliation with the church or reconciliation with Christ I should say so she has turned to her own ways and she begins to have great influence over. Kristen's life because she does come back and forth to tend to Kristen's sister. She, as I mentioned earlier, also the aunt of Erland, And this is the first time she mentions him to Kristen. Now, Kristen's about 11 years old and she mentions her nephew and how handsome he is and how he would be perfect for Kristen, but he's from too good of a family for her. So as we're going along with this, this tension for the soul of Kristen, She next goes to a convent when she is maybe 16. She was nearly assaulted on a dark road one night. And she fends her attacker off, but she was very, very scared by it. And when Kristen is attacked, she tells no one but the attacker's mother. He's actually the grandson of the priest. So the priest and the the priest's daughter, the mother of this attacker, know about it. Well, the woman is a bit of a gossip. And little does Kristen know, she spread rumors about her, especially after someone is inadvertently, as a result of this, murdered. And Kristen's reputation is marred by this slightly. She is accused by some people that she was complicit with her attacker. So because of all of this, a young girl, think of this Going through all of this, still not having told her father, she begs to go to a convent for a year. She just needs to get away. They want the rumors to die down, and she's just going to be like a lay sister for a year. She kind of wants to see if she wants to stay in a convent after all. She is still betrothed at the time. And it is at the convent that Kristen finally meets Erland Nicholson, the nephew of Fra Asild, And she faces the greatest temptation of her life. So how Kristen meets Erland is that she and her roommate from the convent are out shopping. They are with, I believe, one of the priest or one of the sisters. I believe it's a priest. But there is a a riot of some sort. And they're separated from the priest. They don't know how to get back. They're alone, and these men come up and say, we can show you the way back. Well, they take them through the forest and are going to probably assault them, steal their money. And at that moment, Erland and his men come and save Kristen. Remember, she is fresh off of that assault and attack at home, and she's in a new place. She's felt so much shame before she didn't want to tell anyone she had to defend herself. she had to fight her attacker off herself, and here she's this young teenage girl. More men, they're going to take her money, they're going to do who knows what to her. And this handsome knight comes and rescues her, and he's taken with her. But she's still betrothed to another man, and she has been for years. It's a man she admires, but she isn't in love with. but Erlin comes in with all of his charm, with all of his charisma, and begins to seduce. This young girl. But if Kristen gives in to Erland's seduction, what is at stake? Why should we care when it's so titillating and we are so jaded by things now? Well, one thing is, unless Kristen is given consent by her father to marry him, she will always be considered his mistress. So if she were to agree to Erland, she runs off with him, if she becomes his mistress, and her father never gives the consent. She will never be considered Erland's wife. Erland is also in a relationship with another woman, and he has two children by her. He is deceiving Kristen in this because she's still a child, remember. He doesn't tell her about the woman at first, and she hears it from someone else. There is no guarantee that Erland will marry Kristen if and when they begin their sexual relationship, and it could ruin her chances of ever getting married If this is found out, Kristen would be embarking on a relationship that could possibly sever her ties with her father, a man she loves, adores, admires. Kristen is betrothed to Simon. It is as if they are almost married at this point. She's not free to engage in any sort of relationship with Erland. She would be dishonoring Simon. She would be dishonoring her father. She is at risk of losing her reputation and her honor as well. And Erland knows he is asking her to do all of these things. But he's so self-absorbed, he doesn't care. Now, within this what's at stake, there is real chemistry and desire between Kristen and Erland. Sigrid Unset does an amazing job of giving a very realistic picture of temptation. It is palpable, the chemistry between the two. Temptation is something we all face in life. And she shows this without judgment. She doesn't even make Erland a villain. He isn't a great guy, but he is not a villain. He loves Kristen. So she's created this situation so realistically of what as I've said, what we face when we are tempted in life. Erlen is not trying to destroy Kristen or abandon her, but he's still asking her to sin, to break relationships, to become deceptive. Now, remember, Kristen is given a solidly Christian upbringing all of her life. She's the one who has to go to the convent. She has an amazing example of a man of honor and integrity in her father, lawrence but the choice is still up to her of which way she will choose and there is that tension so perfectly portrayed of we can be given all the truth in the world and be faced with something we want so much and the choice is still up to us of the path that we will choose so christina has had this man of integrity as an example in her life. And Erland is the exact opposite of her father. And at one point she tells Frau Asild, but I know that I won't let go of Erland, even if I have to trample on my own father. This is the man she has loved and admired all her life. And the temptation is so strong and her desire is so strong. This is her sentiment for her father at this moment in her life. In my edition of the book, there is a note on the translation, which sheds some wonderful light on the importance of reading this new translation. And it highlights the flaws of the the first translation. And I've mentioned that before in the first episode in the series. But at the end, there's this little quote. It says, I hope that with this new translation, many more readers will now discover Unset's magnificent story of a headstrong young woman who defies her family and faith. To follow the passions of her heart. Now, this seems to be a sentiment shared by some enthusiastic readers of the book, but I'm sure, as you can tell, I take issue with the sentiment because I don't view this as freeing for Kristen when she follows the passions of her heart. I don't see defying her family and her faith as freeing at all. Her faith is freeing, the love of her family is freeing. The passions of her heart are going to take her down a road of heartache, of tragedy of deep pain. They're going to have moments of wonder and of elation and of, of beauty, but they won't last. Kristen's character is changed for the worse. She has learned to deceive people. Her relationship with her father suffer. The way I see the novel is that it shows the corrupting power of sin. It warns us against following the passions of our heart, or rather it shows us the fruit of following the passions of our heart. And it sets the groundwork for the rest of the books and how the fruit of sin is played out. But on the flip side, this is not a moralistic fable. Part of Sigrid Unset's power of writing is that she gives us a character that we can identify with, a character who is flawed, who is complex. It is not a judgmental piece. Instead, it shows Kristen's very real need for atonement, for redemption. A text like this should never be approached with self-righteousness, but with humility that in this life we will face such things, but there is always a choice. And bear in mind, lest you get discouraged by the hard content in this book, there is always redemption. So I hope this has whet your appetite if you have not read the book before, if you stuck with it despite the spoilers, or something to chew on if you've read it before. And I hope you will join me in two weeks when I am, will be back with the series on Kristen Laverne's daughter, discussing the second book, The Wife. And there is a lot to look forward to in that book. A lot happens. And Kristen's character gets more intriguing and more maddening as the book goes on. Well, that's all for this week. I'll be back in two weeks with a new episode. Until then, if you would like to connect... I'm on Instagram at wellreadbeth and the well Life Facebook group. And if you've enjoyed this episode and the podcast in general, would you consider leaving a rating or review? It's a small way to let more people know about the podcast. Thanks so much. Until next time.